Hi, I'm Joe. And I'm Matt. We're the NC Wine Guys. Welcome to Cork Talk. In this episode of Cork Talk, we sit down with Elizabeth Ann Dover of Dover Vineyards in Concord, North Carolina. This episode was our first one recorded remotely due to social distancing. Elizabeth Ann is a modern millennial who decided she wanted to plant a vineyard on her family's farmland. She realized soon after that she would need something else to offset the cost of a vineyard. And so, the farm at Dover Vineyards was born, offering fresh seasonal vegetables that get the same low intervention treatment as her grapes. She talks about how her model of growing, making, and selling wine is a little different than others in the industry, and how she's making the most out of it. The wine mouths are back. This time they talk to us about the many nuances of making red wine. So sit back, pour a glass, and listen. So today we are recording a socially distant episode of Cork Talk Today with Elizabeth Ann Dover of Dover Vineyards in Concord, North Carolina. Elizabeth Ann, welcome to Cork Talk. Thank you. So Elizabeth Ann, why don't you go ahead and um, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you. Sure. Um, my name is Elizabeth Ann Dover and I am the owner of Dover Vineyards in Concord. Um, I have worked in multiple places across the state and in Australia and New Zealand. Dover Vineyards is a six acre produce farm and a seven acre vineyard. We do not have a tasting room per se, but we have several events throughout the year uh, in which we invite the public to come try our wine. How's that? That sounds awesome. I mean, I know we've been there for some of those public events and it's definitely mm-hmm. something uh, it, it's a, it really is a unique experience because you're kind of out there in the vines, just like kind of tasting the wine. It's really kind of fun. Good, 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 good. That's what I like to hear. So I didn't realize you had six acres of, you know, non-grape products. And I know, what are some of those that you grow? Sure. We grow lettuce and kale, Swiss chard, pumpkins, butternut squash, okra, onions. We're putting onions in the ground tomorrow tons and tons of onions and blueberries is another big crop and strawberries very cool quite the diversity there so well you it, it leads to a more stable income i believe sure. we're supposed to diversify our portfolio right absolutely absolutely very, very yeah. smart very smart so let's talk a little bit about the vineyard then so what varieties do you have planted um and, and maybe go into depth with, with some of those varieties as well because at least one of them is not commonly known i don't think in this in this state sure sure uh well what you're probably talking about is Villard blanc yes that is the my favorite grape to grow it is so easy requires very little spraying and as pierces disease resistant we rarely see any powdery or downy mildew on it so it essentially takes care of itself we also grow Chamberson and a little bit of Cabernet Franc and Petit Verdot. Those vineyards are just starting to produce this year, fingers crossed. Um, the, we planted them uh, three and four years ago, so no production off of those two yet. Uh, but the Cabernet Franc and the Petit Verdot both seem to grow fairly well. Um, we have some low spots in which they don't grow well. We have this strip down the middle of the vineyard that all the water drains there and so we just sort of stopped planting vines there it it looks kind of strange but um it just was pointless for us to keep replanting those when they would just die year after year yeah grapes don't really like to be have their feet wet as as folks like to say so 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 you have the you have the farm and you have the vineyard so which came first the produce or the grapes 
so we planted the grapes in 2009 and that was originally the plan was to start a vineyard but in order to have some cash flow during the first three or four years we planted produce it also allows us to have a better um, retention of employees because there's always something going on so we're not hiring a lot of seasonal help so we're able to maintain employment throughout the year that that's our goal is to not have to hire and train our staff every year but to be able to employ them throughout the year so we planted uh, the grape in April of 2009 and then we started the farm or the the produce aspect of it in September of 2009. That's pretty cool. I mean, it, it brings up something that you don't really think about is that you do need help throughout the year when you have both types of crops. Whereas with grapes, it's kind of, you know, steady for a certain amount and then kind of not much happens over the winter and then all of a sudden the growing season begins, so. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, and it, it's hard to find, at least it, we're near a metropolitan area, so we're not exactly rural. We don't have the, the same labor sources that some of the other vineyards would have um, in the same sort of uh, rotate or same cycle of life of a farm that a lot of rural areas are used to having. People in our area are they would expect to be employed year-round. They would be, you know, it wouldn't make sense for them to work for us for a few months and then not. So we, we try and keep that. That's one of our main focuses is being able to employ people year-round. So yeah, it's very smart planning and to try to keep those folks. Because as you pointed out, the, the training and the retraining, you know, they're, they're, they're going to forget. So it saves time, I'm sure. Yep, to do yep. That. So back in 2009, what made you choose your location to plant your vineyard? It is my great-grandmother's farm. So I didn't really have much of a choice. I could do it there or not at all, essentially. So um, I inherited the land from my great-grandmother. It used to be a dairy, and I think we got really, really lucky with the site selection. It is north-facing, which whenever you are as far south as we are, it's that's fairly important a lot of people think south facing is important to ripen their crop but we don't have that problem in concord we have plenty of heat we have plenty of warm days are we rarely have trouble getting ripeness in our product so um we want to actually slow it down a little bit so we're not picking in the middle of august uh we'd rather you know slow down our crop a little bit and pick in the first week of september if we can so yeah, and it also uh, is on an ancient volcanic, uh, a location of ancient volcanic activity. It's not an actual volcano, but it has some unique soil properties. If you look uh, at a geographical map of North Carolina, where it has all the different types of soil and stone, you can pick out Concord because it's a little dot in the middle of whatever other type of soil and stone we have around but it's very distinct and we have a lot of iron in our soil and I don't know how that affects the growing of our grapes and the flavor of the wine I just know that it is uh, unlike the other places that I've worked across the state that's really interesting I would never have thought about ancient volcanic activity kind of ending up in our neck of the woods but you know prehistory being what it is Appalachians were at some point I think in in prehistory they were sure Mountain chain, so. 
So let's talk a little bit about the wines that are made from the grapes that you grow. So you do, I know you've got dry wines, you've got, and then you have a couple of sweeter wines, and then there's some oak age wines, I think. So let's talk a little bit about, about the variety that you have there. Sure. Okay. So right now um, we have two Villard Blancs. One is barrel fermented. The other one is stainless steel fermented. Depending on how you treat Villard Blanc, it can uh, produce different sorts of wines. It's a very versatile grape. One of my favorite things to do is barrel ferment anything, really. It's just a nerdy thing that I enjoy doing. I love stirring the barrels. I love comparing uh, stainless versus barrel fermented. Um, our barrel fermented Villard Blanc does not go through mallow. Uh, it's rather uh, European in style when it comes to Chardonnays, not like a California Chardonnay, but we use the Chardonnay yeast and techniques whenever we make the barrel fermented Villard Blanc. It's a little bit rounder, not as acidic. Whenever we make that wine, we always let it hang a little bit longer to produce some more tropical notes, which goes well with the vanilla notes that you get whenever you barrel ferment something um, in American oak, of course. So that's one of, that's one wine. And then the stainless is more like a Pinot Grigio or an Albarino with its acidity. And it's got some hints of like green apple and lemon um, and a little bit of honey but very crisp. They're both very, very popular. Um, we're finishing up the 2016 vintage of the barrel fermented and we are still on the 2017 vintage of the 20, of, of the stainless, of the stainless variety. Um, this past year we harvested some grapes at 37 bricks, which makes me really happy and feel super proud. Uh, a Velour Blanc at 37 bricks, and we made a dessert wine out of that. That'll be released uh, sometime within the next year. But that was a really cool process. Um, I can imagine. We, we've we actually heard about that from, from some folks. Yeah, we were talking to some other winemakers, and they were like, Elizabeth Ann got some really high bricks uh, Velour, and we're like, huh, okay. Oh, so I'm glad the word's getting out because it's a great grape. It's wonderful. But yeah, 37 um, bricks is like tremendous. So that's like, that's, that's way up there. Yeah. Yeah. We uh, went and we crimped the, the rachis or the rachises. I don't know what the plural of rachis is or whatever. Um, and so sort of dried them on the vine. We didn't pick them and lay them out on mats and then run fans across of them like some people do. We just left them in the field and crushed the little vascular systems to the grapes and they botrytized and it was it was a thing of beauty um i don't know if we'll be able to do it again but you know it's one of those things if we're not going to be heavily spraying then we can really right try to do this and we had a we had a huge crop of of just white white grapes this year so or this past year sorry this past year 2019 was a great year for most people but right. especially for us so um that's something to look forward to. Yeah, yeah. very exciting. Uh, now, in terms of red, right now we have our Cabernet Franc, and that's made with a little bit of Chamberson from our vineyard, and we had a major crop loss. And I got some grapes from Raylan that I was working there at the time, and their Cabernet Franc that year was absolutely beautiful. So we combined my Chamberson with their Cabernet Franc in a ratio which it is legal to call Cabernet Franc. 
and uh, made a very delectable red. Uh, it's got some great acidity to it and some decent tannins. It's not super tannic, but you can definitely taste them. Um, and so it's aging very well. Um, I'm really proud that the majority of our wines are ageable. The whites, of course, I wouldn't really age, but um, the the two that we had before this, which we sold out of, the 2012 Chamberson and the 2013 Chamberson, uh, I would have no trouble selling those for like four more years. And you know, they were for a North Carolina wine. That's that's something to be proud of. So um, we have two blends. Two Cyril's blend. Cyril is the squirrel that lives at our farm stand, and he eats all of our produce if we don't watch <laughs> him very carefully. Um, he one year ate all of our winter squash harvest. We had them uh, in little containers with lids on them, and they were sitting beside the farm stand. And he goes out and he lifts up all the lids and hops in and nibbles a few bites of everyone <laughs> making the whole harvest uh, unsellable. Oh no. Oh. It was That's horrible. Terrible. It was, I mean, I was, I wasn't crying because bad stuff happens on farms all the time. But at the same time, I'm like, really, really, <laughs> Are you kidding me? So I decided to put them on a bottle of wine and make some money out of them. Well, you might um, as well. It's a good story. <laughs> it's a good story. Um, but he loves, uh, loves tomatoes and apples. Butternut squash. I have some pictures of him like running out of a tree, grabbing a piece of fruit, and then running back to the tree and eating it in the tree. Oh. Um, very healthy, healthy squirrel. <laughs> well so, fed. Um, He's got all that good produce to. to yeah, <laughs> yeah. All of my profits go to Cyril. Um, <laughs> so we, whenever I'm working for another vineyard or winery, I like to purchase grapes and see what's coming in that looks good and then make a blend out of whatever I see that's looking good. So that's what Cyril's blend is. It's from year to year, it'll be very different. It will be grapes sourced from different places throughout the state, but it will always be sourced from North Carolina fruit. Uh, doesn't mean that we have long-term contracts with any of these growers. It's just sort of like a little patchwork quilt of the sure. year. Whatever I see is looking good and I can blend it with some other stuff that I see that I have that's also looking good. Um, that would be that's that's what Cyril's blend ends up being. So the 2017 was very fruity, very smooth. Uh, for people who like California wines, that is California Merlot spe specifically. That is what I suggest for them because it is just really, really smooth and on the lighter side and just incredibly fruity. Not super jammy, but just very fruit forward. The uh, 2018 is not as fruit forward. It's got some earthier notes, some animaly notes, some tobacco, some leather. Um, it's not, again, not super tannic because uh, I didn't want to hide all the fruit that was there. I needed some fruit to balance all the rest of the, the notes that were in there. So uh, it's it's still an interesting wine. It's very old world in style. Um, for people who like Barbera Dastes or that it sort of tastes like one of those. Um, okay. Yeah. Sounds sounds really tasty. Yeah, it does. <laughs> I'm one of those people that likes Barbera nasty. So, so it's got a bit of funk to it. Um, it's not. It's not. You can tell it's not a California wine. Let me put it that way. Got it. All right. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about. So on the wine labels, you have kind of yes. an interesting um, idea that 
on the wine labels that no one else is doing, and it's really cool that you're doing it. Oh, what's that? The state symbols. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Thank you. <laughs> um, one of my friends from um, Lincoln came up, or sorry, Lincoln is where I went to school in New Zealand, and one of my friends down there said, hey, you should put the symbols of North Carolina on your wine labels. I'm like, oh, okay, I'll do that. Don't mind if I do. So let's so, talk about, so obviously um, you've got the, the gray squirrel for Cyril. Mm-hmm, yes. So what are the other symbols that you have? Yeah, the rosés. Whenever we have a rosé, we have a dogwood on that. And then we have the longleaf pine on the Villard Blanc. Chamberson, which I don't think you've seen because it'll be new this year, will have a cardinal on it. Very nice. And the dessert wine that we're making this year will have a honeybee on it. Okay. Oh, nice. Excellent. Yeah. And I'm really, really happy with how it's working out i, I mean I, I thought the the idea through but you always expect for something to go wrong and like for you have to not put a symbol or for the theme not to continue but we've been able to carry it through fairly well i do want to make a wine in the future that is uh an homage to our resident hawk um and i don't think we have a hawk yeah that is but we have a a hawk that lives on the property that scares birds away and (laughs) i don't know if it's the same one year after year or not but we call the hawk maurice so (laughs) it's a good name for a hawk yeah yeah i would love to make a wine in honor of maurice that's awesome all right well sticking with the animal theme though um, Mm -hmm. you also often post pictures of taking your cats to the vineyard so let's (laughs) talk about that for a moment Oh, it's one of the joys of having a vineyard beside your house. And I had, I at one point I had about uh, 18 cats. They enjoy going out into the vineyard with me, going on walks. Uh, we have this place that's beside my house on a little creek that uh, I call it the beach, and the cats love to go to the <laughs> beach. But uh, Frequently, if we're going out to work in the vineyard, uh, the cats will join us out there and just hang out with us on our black plastic. Uh, that's what we use for weed control. They'll they'll sit on the black plastic or they'll run up and down the rows and we'll do what we call zoomies, or they'll just <laughs> they'll sit in the uh, in the in the aisles or just hang out with us. Um, they all have their different territories. So some of the cats really like going to the vineyard. Others like going to the beach more. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, the the workaholics like to go to go to the vineyard with us. <laughs> well, I mean, who wouldn't want to lay on the hot black plastic? I yeah. mean, if you're a cat, that's exactly what I would want <laughs> yeah. to do. Yeah. <laughs> Made for them. So let's talk a little bit about your time switching gears completely from cats. Or maybe not. I don't know. Maybe there's some cats involved here. Let's... Talk about your time in Australia and New Zealand and, and what that has brought to uh, how you approach making wine and, and growing grapes. Sure. Uh, I was very, very lucky to study abroad at Lincoln University. And while I was at NC State, that was my study abroad opportunity and went down there for about six months and worked, had a little uh, internship at a place called Pyramid Valley Vineyards. And I worked in the vineyard at the school. I was not really an intern. I was more like a volunteer um, working. And I just was looking at my photos from this yesterday. That was 10 years ago. I really miss it. It was an awesome, awesome opportunity to learn about wine. Because every time you go make wine in a different place, especially places that are so different from your own, you learn more about 
the essence of actual winemaking, not just formulas and not just what North Carolina does, but the reasons why you would do something in a hot climate versus a cool climate. So I might have learned a lot about cool climate winemaking there because it is significantly cooler during the growing season. It's not necessarily colder during the winter, but uh, in the time that the grapes are being produced, they struggle with maturation uh, more than we do. Uh, well, more than I do, not more than some places in the Yadkin Valley do. So, it, you know, it gives you some good perspective on all the different things going on in the grape, not just what's going on in the grape in North Carolina. So uh, Australia was also another great opportunity. Worked in two places there. And the first one was uh, like a family-owned winery. They produced a lot of wine. I can't say that I enjoyed the experience, but I got to see firsthand what it was like to, uh, I, I learned what I didn't want to do. Let me put it that way. I learned a lot about what not to do. Um, and the second place was in Tasmania, and that was a large corporate winery owned by Constellation Brands. And that was such a smoothly run operation, uh, day shift and night shift. and. Yeah. We would process juice and send it to the mainland, or we would make the wine there. It was just part of a large, large organization, um, very, very corporate, at least from, you know, in comparison to anything that we have in North Carolina. Um, you know, like safety training days and manuals and um, clocking in and out with like swipe cards and stuff. Uh, yeah, that's crazy yeah, for sure. And it sounds very corporate. <laughs> you didn't just like do whatever you needed to do to get the tank clean. You had to have someone standing outside, you know, you had to have all your safety equipment on all the time. Um, I did a lot of squeegeeing floors, so <laughs> I could clean floors for five hours a day. Um, they had me doing that a lot because apparently I was good at it. <laughs> <laughs> but it, you know, we would do our ads. We would have uh, do our punch downs in the mornings, or do them in the night if you're on night shift. And they process most of the fruit at night. We had a interesting sorting table. Um, it was it was just, it was a great experience again. Uh, just learning what I wanted to do, not necessarily anything close to what the the other winery that I worked at was like. So. Uh, very different experiences there. Yep. Um, how did it affect the wine that I make? I think I I just I've been lucky enough to be exposed to a lot of different types of wines, and people's taste buds change throughout the world. So what one country might think is good wine, another country would not. Their taste buds are completely different. It gives me hope that some of the wines that we're producing in North Carolina can be appreciated outside of the state. I guess is the what I'm going for here. Very cool. Very cool. Okay. So it seems like a good time for us to take a quick break and we'll be right mm -hmm. back with Elizabeth Ann. It's time again for Wine Class with the Wine Mouths. Jesse and Jessica, welcome back. Thank you so much. What's the topic for today? Today we're going to be diving into red wine. Mm, okay. That's an interesting topic. Yeah. This is a topic that's near and dear to our hearts. We picked the name 
wine mouths because we like to drink red wine and you get that little red wine mouth or wine mouth as we call it. Um, so yeah, we're going to dig into first how red wine's made. All right, let's go for it. All right, so we'll just go through the process. So first you pick the grapes and they're red grapes, just to throw that out there. Red grapes, red wine, important. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> then you de-stem and crush the grapes. Got to get the juice. Then you put it in some container and ferment it. And you can do that with natural yeast or added yeast or however you want to do it. You just got to get the sugar converted to alcohol. But is that juice red? No. Thank you for asking. (laughs) (laughs) Unless some grapes. Like Chamberson, it's called a tintura grape, which means it has a red pulp or inside. So Hmm. if you slice open a grape, the pulp is clear. Same as Saperado. There may be others. Mm. So then how does red wine turn red? Well, it's because when it's fermenting, it's sitting on its skins, and so all the colors in the skin is just mixing together and turning the juice red. Okay, and that kind of adds the not only the color, but like the flavors and all that complexity that you're looking for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah all the, the good stuff. Right. <laughs> yeah, because the tannins are in the skin and seeds. and So we have our wine. Our juice is fermenting, so it's turning the sugar into alcohol. So then what happens? Then you have to press it, so you have to get the skins and seeds gone. So you press all the juice back out. Um, Often it's put into a barrel. You don't have to, but typically red wine is aged in a barrel, and typically it goes through malolactic fermentation. So you're converting the malic acid to lactic acid, or we like to think like the green apple bitterness, not bitterness, but the green apple sharp acid flavor. You're converting that to a more smooth, acid and then you just sit and wait yeah <laughs> this part takes time patience <laughs> and patience yeah um of course you taste it periodically throughout this process which is sitting also and waiting why red wine is often more expensive than white wine because hmm. you gotta account for all the time so you and can kind of equate this to like cooking and you're like you know tasting throughout to make sure that it tastes good before you just kind of serve it yes yeah. This is the, like, 10-hour setting on your crock pot. (laughs) (laughs) And you're just twiddling your thumbs. Nothing else to be done for the rest of the time. (laughs) All right, so now we've decided that we've waited long enough, and it's time to bottle. So you get it out of the whatever container it's in, bottle it, label, drink it. Or if you want to be extra fancy, depending on the wine, too, you might want to age it a little bit longer in the bottle. Or you can blend it all up and try to make a a blend or... Again, it's kind of like cooking, right? So you, you want to make sure that you have, you know, a little bit of component. You add a little dash of Merlot for fruit or some mm-hmm. Syrah for pepper. and Yeah, that's the fun part. You get to sit in a lab and taste all the wine. And all the iterations of your wine. Who doesn't <laughs> love tasting wine, right? Yeah, that's the whole point. <laughs> and then we have wine, which is the best part. <laughs> well, that's exciting. So, I mean, it seems like a, a pretty straightforward process, as, you know, straightforward as the winemaking process can be. And there's obviously lots of flair and different ways you can put your spin on things at any step in this process, but that's kind of red, red wine making 101. Any other interesting facts about red wine for us? Sure. So we have some um, facts about different varietals. So Cabernet Sauvignon, which is one of my favorite grapes, um, it's a cross actually between Cab Franc and Sauvignon Blanc that happened way back in prehistoric, prehistoric times. Um, and Cab Sav is the most planted wine grape in the world. What is your guys' favorite red grape? Oh, gosh. That's really hard to... Uh, there's so many. Um, I think as far as locally in North Carolina, my preference is Petit Verdot. Uh, I think it does very well in our climate. Um, 
and makes an excellent wine that has good tannins and nice blueberry notes usually and it's just for me it's probably my favorite um, wine just have with food or have a glass so I would say my probably favorite North Carolina red is probably a Chamberson, actually. Mm. They can they can kind of run the gamut of, you know, really tart and light to like big and heavier depending on the oak influence. So I think that's probably mine. If I had to think outside of North Carolina, I would definitely say, and please don't judge me, Beaujolais. Ah. So, so I love Gamay, yeah. but I mean, it's not like the Beaujolais Nouveau. It's, mm. it's more of the, I really like the Cru Beaujolais. I really like the ones that are given time to mm. do what they really need to. Nice. Uh, you know, kind yeah. of fruity, still quaffable, but uh, something that you really just don't really think about when you're drinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if I had to pick one outside of North Carolina, it would be a, probably a red blend from Rome Valley. So a GSM blend, mm. Grenache, Syrah, Mavedra, um, that kind of earthy, mm. but yet fruity. Yeah. I just love that. How about for you two? It's so hard to pick, but I'm with you on Chamberson. Um, that was probably like my gateway North Carolina wine. Nice. <laughs> um, and then I've always been a fan of like Argentinian Malbecs, mm. but yeah. For me, I think for North Carolina, I love Cabernet Franc. I love the kind of harshness of it actually in the red or the green bell pepper and earthy. Yeah. Um, and then just in general, I'm really loving some Chilean reds right now. I've had some good red blends from Chile. Very cool. That's exciting. Cab Franc was going to be my second choice too. Mm-hmm. So. There's just so much red wine to explore. I know. Not only locally in North Carolina, but across the world. Yeah. Um, our final question for you guys. <laughs> Who gets the worst wine mouth? Mmm. <sighs> or are you both immune to it? <laughs> we try to maintain. <laughs> I, I have like notoriously dry lips sometimes, so I, I will sometimes get a little bit of stain. It's probably me. Yeah. If I do, it's temporary. I use a lot of baking soda when I brush my teeth, so that keeps the keeps mm-hmm. the stains off the teeth. But I guess you know it depends on the, if it's just a regular Tuesday night. I mean, it's going to be a class or two. <laughs> if it's a party, then yeah, maybe. I will have to take your advice of licking the glass first, and I will let you know. <laughs> to be fair, I've not ever actually tried that. Perhaps as an experience. Yes. But I do um, recommend not putting your whole mouth in there. <laughs> that, that, that makes sense. Yeah. You don't, don't need to like, yeah. yeah. You don't need to be a fish. Yeah. We have a friend who gets joker lips. So she like really gets all in there. And her wine mouth exceeds the boundaries of her lips. Well, thank you very much for giving us the tour, the background of red wine. We definitely appreciate it. And we'll be looking for all of our favorite reds here in the near future. Jesse and Jessica, thank you very much. Thank you. You can find out more information about the Winemouths by going to their website, winemouths.com, or on Facebook and Instagram at Winemouths. That's W-I-N-E-M-O-U-T-H-S. And now, back to the show. All right, so uh, welcome back. We're here still with Elizabeth Ann Dover. Um, Elizabeth Ann, we wanted to talk a little bit about how you're a little bit unique in your aspect that you grow the grapes, but you also have a very active hand in making the wine, most of the time actually making the wine itself. So talk a little bit about what went into the decision of actually wanting to do that. Yeah, yeah. I really enjoy making things. That's the long and the short of it. I love being creative and starting with one product and ending up with another. And we don't have a site 
in Concord that is conducive to production. Um, land prices are not such that it is a wise decision, actually for us to farm at all. Um, but, you know, putting a, a production facility here, I didn't think was a good use of our, our space and our money. So we've used contract facilities. We're on our third one now. So we started out at Raylan and I was a seller hand there and we would bring our grapes there and then I was on staff at Raylan. So I would then make the wine while I was working for Raylan and then Dover Vineyards, of course, pays for the custom crush or the use of the custom crush facility. And we had a similar operation with uh, Laurel Gray or the Yadkin Valley Wine Company as well. And did that for two harvests or two seasons. And I decided last year that I would step away from the production aspect of winemaking and that I should turn my focus towards other things. Um, but we now have um, a custom crush agreement with Childress. And I do miss making the wine very much, but I do trust them very much, um, giving them the instructions on what I like. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad that I went to winemaking school and that I've worked in different wineries across the world because I feel like I'm able to give instructions better knowing the constraints that production is under and that I can say, with more certainty or with a better knowledge of what they're up against or how to time requests. Sometimes as a person who's worked in the custom crush in a custom crush facility, you get requests which are just not possible or feasible or the person who's asking you to make the wine um, asks it a little too late in the game and you're like, well, if I had known about this two months ago, yeah, we could have done this, but not now. Right. Um, it helps when you know what's coming around the corner, for sure. Yeah. Um, and, you know, every facility is different. And every facility is set up uh, to produce different types of wines, some uh, more conducive towards some, or different, you know, different styles. But, you know, you can, you can do a lot. Uh, you, can, you can do a lot of different things at these custom crush facilities. Um, I love it. Um, I don't think, I think we have a false narrative in North Carolina that you should have your own winery. I think that's one of the most ridiculous ideas ever. Um, especially if you've never worked in a right. winery before, why on earth would you start your own winery not having worked in one for like long periods of time? Uh, they're huge capital investments. They're very expensive and you only use the equipment most of the time once a year. So, you know, sharing equipment with other smaller wineries is is the way to go. And I have no shame in telling people that our wine is made at a different facility. I, I think a lot of people right. want to hide when they use a custom crush facility, that it's going to somehow mean that it's a lower quality product. But in my experience, if you haven't worked in wineries and you open up your own winery, the wine is going to be of an inferior quality for a few years until you actually figure out what you're doing. Yeah. In my opinion, the best wines in the state are made at these custom crush facilities who can employ winemakers with years of experience. A lot of people think you can retire and start a winery <laughs> as a second job, but the really successful ones are people who retire 
and then hire winemakers who have been doing it for years, who don't start all over on the second career whenever they're like 55 or 60, because you have a 10-year learning curve. It just makes sense to employ people to do their job. So that's my that's my take on it. It definitely makes sense too, and I, I think you brought up a good a good point on that. Is that more collaboration in that area? I think would be really helpful for the state, because like yeah. you said, not everyone maybe has the expertise to actually run their own winery or has enough background to do that. But I think a lot of people just kind of more collaborating together who can then pull the resources and bring in that talent or that expertise. So just do better for the state anyway. Yes, there, we need more collaboration in the state. We need to humble ourselves and our egos and realize that we can't do this by ourselves and quit pretending that we don't make mistakes and then just learn from it. So, you know, the collaboration aspect is something that the beer industry is really good at. And it's not something, it's not the wine industry's strong point. I, I would not disagree with that statement. It's you very rarely, all the time we're seeing breweries collaborating on a special beer, um, and, but there are very few instances of that happening in the wine industry, at least in this state. So um, that yep. is something we would like to see more of uh, mm-hmm. for sure. Um, and as you pointed out with the custom crush, having that talent, having the, the resources that can be available because you have a larger facility um, is, is important because the quality is typically better um, and you're going to produce wine that is probably with fewer faults. And if there is a fault, then there's someone there that knows what to do to help correct it. Um, yep. So that's important as well. Mm-hmm. So one thing we also wanted to talk about was how involved you are with the community itself. So anyone who is uh, paying any attention to your Facebook page or any of your other feeds uh, sees you posting about all these things that you're doing, whether it's classes or involvement somehow in the community. Talk a little bit about what drives that and, and what you get out of it. Oh, are you talking about the cooking classes? Yes, specifically the cooking classes. I have I have a oh, soft okay. spot for cooking. <laughs> um, well, those are really, really fun. Uh, I, cooking is a passion of mine that I love sharing i never thought that it would be something that other people don't know how to do but apparently it's a skill that other people want to learn especially since we do farm to table uh so we'll take stuff that is grown by us or people we know in the farming community and turn it into a four course dinner i used to do this pretty regularly on sunday evenings when we would get home from the farmer's market and i would just have all my friends over for dinner it would be made from whatever didn't sell at the market. So now I've sort of turned that into a way for people to come out and experience the farm and to have the uh, have a dinner with us and then they get glasses of wine so they get to try the wine in a non-tasting room setting and people love it. They have so much fun. It is really, really fun sharing my home with well, not complete strangers, but a lot of times there are people that I don't know and or with children and teaching them how to cook and seeing their eyes open when they start to realize how to make salad dressing, which, you know, is something that is very easy. But if, you know, you told many uh, adults, hey, could you make me some salad dressing? They were like, what? I've never made salad dressing. I guess you can make it, you know, like things like that. Um, Somehow it gets into that bottle. <laughs> Yeah, somehow it gets into the bottle, and there are ingredients in the salad dressing, and you know what? You can make it at home, and it's really easy. 
but yeah, so much better. You know, being there for those aha moments is pretty awesome. Um, but we also have lots of volunteer days. We frequently have school groups out working with us, um, like Montessori style schools or um, Girl Scout troops. Haven't had any Boy Scouts in a while, or uh, we also had. We'll just have anybody really out on the farm. If you want to come pull weeds and learn from us, that's great. Come on out. We will put you to work. You will learn something. Uh, we have people who just want to get outside. I had one friend who was a teacher a few years ago, and she just wanted to get outside and not be near anything that reminded her of her life. And so she came and pulled weeds all day and happier, you know, left much, much happier. So. Uh, we do practice a more sustainable form of growing grapes than most. We don't spray herbicides, we use black plastic and we weed the plants. So it is much more labor intensive um, than most vineyards in the state. So we, were, you know, we rely on community support to get that done. And for the most part, I think people really enjoy that and they'll come out and harvest. I mean, we harvest with an almost volunteer crew in the, the first week of September. It's just, it's really fun to see our customers come out and work and they feel like they're a part of the bottle. And then in a few years, they'll get their bottle that they worked on. And that, that it creates a, a great connection with, with the business, with the product, with our wine. Yeah, we have, we have some people who like do not miss harvest which is great because it's hard work. <laughs> Harvest <laughs> is hard work and it's hot. But we have people who are like, yeah, I'm gonna be there again. I'm like, great, you're like year number seven, you know, <laughs> they're out there with us. They'll come out and pick for like two, three hours and you know, really bring in some, bring in some grapes, yeah. So let's switch gears a little bit and talk about wine education. So um, I think you're studying for Witsit and Talk about your wine study groups and how that impacts some of the winemaking decisions that you make. Yes. Well, uh, I took level two last year, and that was really, really fun. And I, I, I studied at uh, Johnson & Wales, and I would love to do level three sometime soon. It's just not working out right now with different things I have going on in my life. The class was full of people in the wine industry and like bar owners or distributors or um, other retailers uh, were in the class. So it was a great networking opportunity. Learned a lot. Um, I'm, I, we all started studying for level three together, even though some of us haven't taken it. But we'll get together and have a few, taste a few bottles of wine and take notes and discuss. And, you know, maps are really important. And learning specifics about barrel aging at regulations across Europe and things like that. It's a lot of detail. It's a lot of trivia. And it's really, honestly, unfortunate that people who know wine trivia end up making more money than the people making the wine. And that's the reason I got into these classes was to improve my resume um, and to make more money uh, because people who are sommeliers earn more money than people who make wine. And that's, I don't know if anyone's addressed that, but I just think that's unfair because it takes years and years of experience to make wine, sure. but it, the, the pay just isn't there. It doesn't line up for the amount of experience that you need. Um, so unfortunately, the people who know wine trivia 
and things about wine end up making more money than the people who actually make the wine. So, you know, there has to be a way to rectify that or at least bring awareness to that. It doesn't make sense to have these years of experience and still be working for the pay that winemakers get. So anyway, so back to how it might have changed the winemaking that I, or the, the styles of winemaking that I pursue. I remember having some wine that the uh, my classmates thought was amazing. I thought to myself, oh, this tastes just like a North Carolina wine. But it wasn't made in North Carolina. It was made in Italy. And I thought to myself, you know what? If these people think that this Italian wine is great, but they would get the same tasting wine from North Carolina, they would say it was bad. <laughs> and, yes, perception. Perception. Yes. It is completely... 100% perception, like these earthy notes, these um, animaly notes, they're perfectly acceptable in a wine from Italy or France, but they're not acceptable in a wine from North Carolina. And it's all about balance and creating a, a good, delicious product, but at the same time, it just brought to the forefront of my mind the double standard that exists when it comes to these flavors. So they're great and they're inventive whenever they are pet gnats from a little cave in a hole in the wall in France. <laughs> but they're disgusting and faulty flawed wines whenever they're made in the same exact condition, same exact sort of winemaking philosophy in North Carolina. That just drove home to me that I should just continue to make the wine that I make and that some of these wines that we are not I don't think we're giving a chance in North Carolina. If they were anywhere else, they would be given a chance and they might be even given a gold medal. Yeah, I think we have a little bit more in common with some of those old world um, wines than, say, California. Climate is more there's, similar to yeah. Europe than it is to California. So. Yep, definitely. There's some, there's some wines that we get. I work at the Assorted Table Wine Shop, uh, and it's got the best selection of wine in Charlotte. It's just spectacular, and the staff is really, really knowledgeable. And we get wines in direct from wineries, from winemakers, and we'll taste through them. And I'm like, wow, if North Carolina made this wine, everyone would, like, poo-poo it, and they wouldn't buy it. But because it's made in Italy, we're going to sell a bajillion cases. Not really a bajillion cases, but, you know, it'll be an easy sell. Just because of the, the name or the, the place it's from and the label, it looks really interesting or professional or actually just really unprofessional and, you know, like it's a, a home project. But if we do that as the state of North Carolina, it doesn't, give, it doesn't yield the same high-end wine results. Yeah. And speaking of assorted table, Josh has a good variety of North Carolina wine there as well. Not only wines he from does. the world. So he's, he's, he is supportive of the local industry and um, he's really great. And we've enjoyed meeting he's him a few times. He's the most supportive wine shop owner I have ever met in terms of North Carolina wines. So, I mean, he does wine dinners and highlights North Carolina wines and does North Carolina wine tastings all the time and really fights for the North Carolina wine industry, more so than any other wine shop owner I've met. And I've met a lot, I've met a lot of them. <laughs> I'm sure, I'm sure yeah. yes. So let's talk a little bit about that. So your wines are available at the produce stand, at the farm. 
talk about where else folks can find your wine and how you interact with shop owners such as Josh and, and that sort of thing to get the wine out there. Uh, well, actually, the wine is not available at the produce stand. Um, oh, okay. We're, yeah, we're doing that as a special during oh, okay, this right now. Of, hmm? Right now during the pandemic. Yes, right now during the pandemic, it is available at the at the farm stand. Uh, as long as we're not keeping consistent hours, we're allowed to use our special event permit. Got it. So that's what we're using there. Uh, we don't have we don't have the capacity to have consistent business hours so um it's just it wouldn't it's not uh economic for us to do that that makes sense uh we typically are out doing events all across the charlotte area so we'll do food truck fridays and matthews we'll do some events in huntersville um we do several large beer festivals in cornelius um we're essentially i'm a millennial so we are uh, a mobile millennial-owned business uh, with staff that has little smartphones, and we're swiping. So it's not. Well, we're also available at Wanda's Good Stuff Store. That's our official location. Uh, that is our thrift store. My family owns a thrift store as well, and so Wanda, um, the manager of the store, the owner of the store, is. Uh, there from 9 to 3 Monday through Friday and the first Saturday of every month we know that that's not the most convenient time to buy wine you have to really go out of your way to purchase wine from 9 to 3 on a Monday through Friday you have to really want want the wine (laughs) but we are in several retail outlets Um, just depends on where we're uh, going but uh, right now it's uh, the what is it Chocolatier downtown Concord and assorted table in common market. We've been in quite a few, but from what I can tell, um, I'm going to be making fewer sales calls and focusing more on selling from the stand and shipping, especially in this new economy that we're in. Right. So, um, the, 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 the shipping of the wine and then like delivering wine around town, and then opening up our farm stand for selected occasions seems to be the best way to get our product out there right now. And how many cases are you, are you producing a year? Oh, it really it really depends. Um, is for from as few as like two hundred to a thousand four hundred cases. It it really depends on the year and if we have a need for anything or if we have like a crop shortage or a freeze or something like that happens so do you have a favorite wine that you've made oh man <laughs> that's like I, asking I which one of your cats be... is better hmm? that's like asking which one of your cats is your favorite right yeah <laughs> can't do it um i i think the uh the 2017 villard blanc is the it's the best wine i've made um and a lot of people think that red wine should be the best wine that you've ever made. They're the ones that get all the gold medals. But <laughs> I think in terms of balance and low intervention and just like the wine being good and not having to do a thing to it, um, the 2017 Villard Blanc is just, it's a stellar wine. Um, the uh, dessert wine that we're making this year will probably be up there as well. I know that that one's going to be spectacular, um, and we're expecting that one to be able to be aged for 
like 10 to 15 years. So oh, wow. it should be really interesting to watch Very that cool. one evolve. Yes. Yeah, I can't I can't wait to try some and we'll we'll definitely get a bottle or two and put away. Yeah. For sure. Oh yeah. Mhm. So, having first started planting in 2009, uh, what have you learned over the years about the winery or about business or about the produce or or anything in general? Well, I learned to chill out really fast. Um there's no way there's no way that you can control all the things that happen on a farm and i come from uh an educational experience that says if you work hard and fast then you're gonna be successful and that's just not the case when it comes to farming at all Uh, i'm not saying that hard work doesn't pay off but you are at the mercy of so many things that you know you can work really hard and still lose your whole crop that's you know that's not some things are just really outside of your hands and you have to learn to let go of a lot of things a lot of control issues that i think modern americans have would go away if they had to grow their own food if they experienced that that kind of loss on a regular basis i've learned oh geez i mean i've learned just about anything that i could have learned i've learned in the in these 10 years it puts you through the ringer it really does it's really, really hard to start a vineyard. It's exhausting. <laughs> I've learned how to uh, prioritize sleep and make good life decisions, I guess. <laughs> That's um, very important for sure. Drainage is just really important. Getting the, get, getting the field ready before planting is the most important thing. Um, it's hard to fix that once you've planted. Um, we've learned mostly just about like soil management of course, we're learning a lot about sprays and things like that. Uh, you're always staying on top of the newest developments there. And well, Pierce's disease was not something that we learned about majorly in school. So uh, the second year, uh, our Vidal Blanc got Pierce's and died. Uh, it just wasn't something that I was on the lookout for. Uh, but we, it was two warm winters in a row in the second year. Excuse me, um, the second year it just withered and died. So that has become more of a problem in the past 10 years. Um, And I think kids in school now are learning about the serious threat that Pierce's disease is to the industry. Um, And it was just whenever I was in school, it was like powdery, downy, and black rot. That was the thing. And then there was Pierce's disease, but it's still like pretty far south. You may see it, you might not. But, you know, I saw it in the second year and we lost half of our vineyard. So that was a really hard lesson. you know, cash flow is always really important, especially whenever you have a business that your bills are due at a certain time every year. It's not like they're due at a certain time every month. You're working on like an annual cycle. So managing cash flow is always important, something that you learn. Very different than running a household when you need like your laundry detergent, your dish detergent, your paper towels, and then your whatever expenses for the month you know, vineyards, your expenses are like at the very beginning of the year, like all together. Um, And then you'll have some sprays that you'll need to purchase throughout the year. And then if you're making the wine, you have a whole, you have a whole different set of production costs. Um, Or if you're just purchasing, if you're doing a custom crush, then you have a different set of cash flow issues as well. So you know, managing that and really understanding that even if you do a business plan, you, you have to make yourself feel it. 
you have to make yourself really understand how much you should be saving or spending or how much you can spend depending on whatever's happening in the cycle of the vineyard. So Is that okay? It's a lot to juggle. <laughs> mm-hmm. So what's left the biggest impact on you? Oh, the biggest impact on me. Um, okay, the biggest impact on me has been making sales calls to store owners, to wine store owners, and being turned away without even having the opportunity to taste with them. With uh, I get this all over the state. I would walk into a wine store and say, hey, I own a vineyard. Would you like to taste my wine? And then they just say, no, thank you. And you're like, well, I, I have this wine. It's really not that bad. It's actually kind of good. Would you like to try it? I'm like, no, no, we're not interested. I'm like, well, okay, bye. <laughs> I've, just, I've seen a lot. The, the wine industry and making those sales calls is one of the more humiliating things that I've ever done in my life. And it really shakes your self-confidence and makes you double think your life decisions. You know, I was raised to give everything a try. And if you notice on the back of the labels, it says, give it a try because so many people will not just even give it a thought. So that has had, that would be the biggest impact on me is straight out of college, really ambitious, really excited. And then to go on these sales calls and they're like, no, thanks. We don't really no, 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 thanks. We we're good. Thank you. No need. Go on. You know, and that, that is something that really does stick with you. So, yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. Cause it's, it's like having your kid rejected. You know, yeah. so, you know, you've worked so hard at making this product and put a lot of blood, sweat and tears into it. And then somebody just kind of <laughs> turned their nose up at it. It's like, OK, but again, that's that perception issue that we have. Um, so, you know, keep keep trying, I guess. And we can, of course, we're trying to get the word out um, mm-hmm. and we'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah, I know we will take a lot longer than what we we would all probably like, but. It'll happen. Yeah. So what do you look most forward to in the future? I look forward to planting more vines. I look forward to having enough vines under production that we can open up a tasting room. And we are a family owned business. We are not, we don't have massive sources of income from elsewhere. We are, we're essentially bootstrapping this. So, you know, we are, very conscious of the way that we spend money and being able to produce enough wine that we can open up a tasting room and staff it and not be selling knickknacks and kitschy things, but can continue to focus on the wine and to produce a quality product. That's something that I'm looking forward to. Uh, Who knows how long it'll take. We do need to plant a few more acres or have some long-term contracts with growers in order to make it happen. And, uh, you know, a slight increase in sales every year. We, we don't want to uh, have growth that we can't sustain. Sure. Um, so, you know, watching, we don't have a massive backlog of inventory. We're doing quite well selling what we have right now. Good. Um, in order to grow the business, um, we're going to essentially have to make more wine. And right. if we're going to be making more wine, we're going to have to either buy grapes or plant more grapes. So, you know, Continuing to grow the business is something that I really enjoy. I, I, I love doing that, watching it happen. 
So do you already have in your mind what varieties you're going to plant? Are you going to stick with what you already have or you think you're, you'll branch out a little bit? I have some varieties in mind and I have some uh, discussions with some people across the state. I would love to see the wine that we sell as Dover Vineyards um, represent more than just grapes grown in Concord. I love being able to give credit where credit is due. And if we can find good growers and if we have some relationships with people who are planting grapes and uh, I would love to put their names on labels under the Dover Vineyard umbrella. That's, Okay. That's my goal. We have uh, one, uh, about an acre of Villard Blanc out in Mount Pleasant uh, that I call the Moose Family Vineyard, and that was our first project like this, that we are growing grapes on their property. But it is their property, and it will make a different sort of Villard Blanc than the ones that we produce. So, you know, we'll be doing something different with that. I don't know what it is yet, but uh, this year should be our first crop okay. from out there. Excellent. Well, that's really exciting. Mm-hmm. So is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners before we wrap up this discussion? Thanks for being interested. Come see us. And we agree. The wines are always fantastic. We enjoy every time we get to come to an event there. It's always fun. Like Matt said, sitting amongst the vines and, and just hanging out with folks and enjoying the evening. It's always a fun time. So thank you. Okay. Well, thank you, Elizabeth Ann. We really appreciate your time tonight, and uh, we look forward to seeing you again soon once the pandemic has us all able to leave the house again. (laughs) Awesome. Take care. Thank you for doing this. I appreciate it. That's it for this episode of Cork Talk. Thanks again to Elizabeth Ann. If you've never had any of her wines, you should really take her advice and give it a try. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. It helps others find Cork Talk and lets us know how we can improve. Did you know we have a Patreon page? You'll get patron-only content, early access to each show, and more when you sign up. You can find out more info at patreon.com slash corktalk. And don't forget to follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NCWineGuys. Until next time, and remember... A cork only talks when it's out of the bottle. Cheers! Cork Talk is a free run LLC production.